Hello, and welcome to Melting Pot Stories, the podcast that is a literary love fest for multicultural books. I'm your host for the show, Lori L. Tharps. I'm a writer, an author of both fiction and nonfiction books, a fan of all things multicultural, and I love books. On this podcast, you'll hear inspiring conversations about the stories behind our favorite diverse books and the latest news and reviews from the publishing world. Come on and join me. I promise this podcast will leave you lit. On episode 68, I am so excited to share with you guys my conversation with author Caitlin Greenwich. Caitlin's debut novel was the critically acclaimed We Love You, Charlie Friedman. Her writing has also appeared in Vogue, Glamour, The Wall Street Journal, Elle.com, BuzzFeed, Virginia Quarterly Review, and other places. She was a contributing editor for Lenny Letter, is currently a contributing writer for The New York Times, and recently became the features director of Harper's Bazaar magazine. On today's episode, though, Caitlin is here to talk about her stunning new novel, Liberty. Liberty was just released on March 30th, 2021. And this book has already received dozens of rave reviews. Liberty is a coming-of-age story that begins in the second half of the 19th century in New York. It's about a free-born Black woman named Liberty Sampson, who is the dark-skinned daughter of a light-skinned mother who also is a doctor. So Liberty's mother raises her daughter, expecting her to follow in her footsteps and become a doctor as well. But after the Civil War is fought and the promises of Reconstruction beckon, Liberty imagines a different future for herself. So when the opportunity to move to Haiti, where Black people are truly free, comes up, she takes it. During our illuminating conversation, where I promise there are no spoilers about the novel, Caitlin shares the true story Liberty was inspired by, and she talks about why she wanted to write Black historical fiction that wasn't about Black exceptionalism. We also talk about what she thinks freedom is and why she writes female characters that are so powerful. We also get to talking about the writing life and Caitlin explains why she doesn't believe in writer's block and why she doesn't think writers should hide from real life. Writers and aspiring writers, this episode is gold. Folks looking for their next multicultural read with original characters and a brilliant storyline you're going to love this peek behind the curtain of an amazing new novel. We're not even going to take a melting pot minute today because I want to get right to our conversation with Caitlin Greenidge. So let's get to it. Welcome to Melting Pot Stories, Caitlin Greenidge. It's so good to have you here. Great. Thank you for having me. So I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests, what are you reading right now? I'm not reading much of anything because I'm having to write a whole bunch and edit for day job and take care of kids. So at the end of the day, I probably have about like 40 minutes to myself. So at the current moment, I'm not reading anything. But, you know, I hope it changes in a month or so once everything calms down. I'm really glad that I asked this question, and I'm obviously interviewing authors all the time, and I think only one author has actually admitted they have time to read. Everybody else, there's just not time, and I want people to really understand. I mean, 
I started this podcast because I want people to get to know the writers behind our favorite books. And I think it's very realistic to understand that we're not always reading as much as we would want to. And that balancing reading and writing is, it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. Yeah. And, you know, reading is ultimately about pleasure, you know, like you're taking a certain amount of time for yourself. So I know that sometimes it can feel like we have to read, like read more books feels like something to make us a better person, like doing more sit-ups or eating more vegetables or something. And it can be those things, but it is also, you know, hopefully a place of relaxation and solace and, and excitement. So I think it's perfectly normal that sometimes you feel that and then there may be a month where you don't feel that and you're not necessarily reading anything, but you know, you get called again to pick up something or pick up a book or a book holds your attention for maybe a short story's length or for 40 pages length. And then, you know, you move on to other things. I think all that is okay. I agree a hundred percent. So we are here to talk about Liberty, your newest book. But before we get into the conversation about the book, I wanted to have people get to know you a little bit. Can you share with us your writing journey? I read in an article that you were wary of majoring in creative writing as an undergrad, but I think that you had said that you'd always loved writing. So I wonder if you could just share how you got to the place where you wrote your first book, We Love You, Charlie Freeman. You know, studying writing is really important to know the craft of writing and also to understand who came before you. I think for a lot of young writers, there's oftentimes when you're not even young in terms of age, just like new to writing, there can be a feeling like no one must have thought of this before. And when you read more widely and study writing, you realize that there's no new idea under the sun, which actually I find comfort in. I don't think that's really that depressing. I sort of think one of the things around writing is hopefully it's to have a conversation with someone else, even if it's just one other reader, you're writing to communicate something to another person. And that's not a one-way street. You know, you want to have that dynamic energy back and forth. So even when you realize like, oh, you know, I I thought I had this original idea for a novel, or I thought I was exploring the sentiment that no one else has ever talked about. And you realize that no, actually, you know, this novel that came out in 1975 talked about this. I actually find that really comforting because then I know, you know, I'm, I'm having a conversation across time and space with this other mind. And it's actually quite beautiful. So when I was thinking of becoming a writer, I was a little bit wary of getting too deep into writing as an undergrad, just because I'm the type of learner where I have to have a project in mind to be able to understand what someone is telling me. It can't really be in the abstract. So I have to be sort of more clear about what it is that I'm actually working on to be able to apply the things that I'm learning. And so I wanted to have an actual story that I wanted to work on to be able to apply the things that I could learn about writing. And then I also sort of thought about this idea of finding inspiration. You know, I I don't, uh, it's going to sound very snobbish, but I don't really believe in writer's block. I think that oftentimes when someone, when I've had a student who says, I have writer's block, it means that they know the story they want to write, but they're really scared to write it for whatever reason. Or it means they just haven't read a lot of anything besides themselves and they that well has essentially run dry. So I think if you can less, I think especially when you're younger or if you're sort of like new to writing, as much as you can train yourself to read widely, read often, read the things that excite you, train yourself to follow your instincts, your artistic instincts, you will come to a place where writer's block or lack of inspiration is less of an issue for what you're going to be working on. I think 
that's probably the biggest training as an artist is to figure out your artistic instincts and the things that are pulling you along. And very rarely do your artistic instincts align with what the wider culture is telling you is important or necessary or real or anything like that. Usually your instincts are your own. And so it can be really difficult to feel like, especially even more so now than when I was a college student, I think I feel really bad for younger writers because there's such a push to like immediately monetize your idea and make money off of it and market it and figure out your brand and all these sorts of things. All of that is just kills any sort of sense of real creativity or real thought. And oftentimes the ideas that are actually going to sustain you are not the ones that are going to fit really easily into a deck for somebody or a, or a book proposal for somebody. And you need to have the confidence and the experience of sort of following your imagination along, knowing that you can't monetize it. There is no way to make sure you get that time paid back. That time is actually just really about nurturing your inner consciousness and understanding of the world. Yeah, you know, and I'm, my next question was, I was going to ask you about your work, like meaning the work you do in the world, not your writing, but all of the jobs that you've had. And I know that you're obviously interested in history. I don't know if you officially call yourself a historian or not. I don't no, legal no. wise, but, but like, <laughs> my some, job is more fun than a historian, so no. <laughs> but you have so many, you've had so many interesting jobs over the years. And like, I feel like those jobs have led you to some of the stories that you tell. Talk a little bit about that idea of balancing real life and real work and inspiration. Because what you were saying is like, you know, people who say they have writer's block perhaps haven't lived enough or read enough. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts about how ideas and stories come to you and your idea of why it's important to still be in the world and and doing things. Yeah, I think that's why it's really important for people to figure out the artistic practice that works for them. And, you know, a book that was super helpful for me, even like four or five years ago, Sarah Rule, she's a playwright and she has a a great book that's called A Hundred Essays I Didn't Have Time to Write. And there are these little mini, mini essays and they're on craft about making up a story. And the, But then they're also about her life. And, the, you know, halfway through the book, you realize the reason why she wasn't able to write these essays is because she had a pretty traumatic birth experience. She gave birth to these twins and she had a really hard recovery, physical recovery and, of course, emotional recovery. But she was still sort of having all these ideas. And so she set herself the challenge of just writing these essays in 300 words or less. And they're great. The essays are great just for teaching. But one of the things I bring it up because one of the things that she says in it is like art isn't the thing that happens when you avoid life or like life doesn't get in the way. Art is a part of your life and your life is a part of your art and they are in conversation with each other. And so, you know, in the West and I think probably in other cultures, too, um, or some other cultures, I should say, we have this idea of the artist as being walked away from everybody else and family life intruding on the artist, especially for women artists, the idea that somehow you, one is going to consume and, and kill the other. Either your career is going to consume and, cons- and kill your family life or your family life is going to consume and kill your career. And I've just found, I've tried to find the artists who speak about how being a part of the world and being a part of a family and being part of a community actually grounded them as artists and grounded them in terms of how they were thinking. So somebody like Sarah Rule, June Jordan has a great essay called like Refuge from the American Dream or something like that, where she talks about 
how she got this artist residency as a poet. And there was the only other person there was sort of like this white guy sculptor. And at the start of that residency, she was thinking like, wow, you know, like I've made it. I'm this black woman. I got to this artist residency. I get to have this whole beautiful house by the beach to myself. I never see anybody. I never have to talk to anybody. All I have to do is just write poems for 12 hours a day. And there's that white guy sculptor over there. And he's kind of like the signal that I've made it because he's here too. And this is how he's always done his art. And then halfway through her artist residency, she's actually sexually assaulted. And afterwards, she realizes she has nobody she can call. She has no community to actually hold her after this horrible event. And it makes her rethink, really, like, what are we measuring around artistic success? What does it mean that if I'm an artist and I've had this terrible rupture in my life and I I don't have the physical community to hold me and that is going to affect my art? And what does this actually mean? And, and the fact that this happened to me means that my definition of artistic success and definition of artistic work is necessarily because of the body I'm in different from what this white guy sculptor who would never face the threat of being sexually assaulted in an empty house defines as necessary for doing art and community. So I just think we have to sort of expand our ideas around what an artist is. You know, I'm also super cognizant that there are some artists who really and truly need to have that monastic existence and they need to be alone. And like, that is a valid thing too. But I also just think realistically, there's more of us out here who necessarily need community and the community actually makes our art better. And, you know, there are a bunch of artists, I think, who think they have to isolate themselves and thus create their own misery around their self-isolation and sort of like keeping themselves sort of like, I can't possibly, you know, interact with this community or I have to keep myself above the fray. And I think there is sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy there. And then I think what perhaps is more realistic is figuring out when I have all these relationships, what are the boundaries that I want to put in place to ensure that my art is protected and my artistic practice is protected and I'm able to stay open to the world and open to inspiration? You know, it's so funny you say that because I literally just did an interview a couple of weeks ago about, you know, can you be a mother and a writer at the same time? And that's always posited like they're mutually exclusive. And I always say that if I didn't have children, I don't think I would have written half the things I've written because Mm -hmm. they have given me story ideas. They have made me contemplate things in different ways. They've also made me more efficient as a writer because, you know, you have to figure out how to balance your time. So this kind of brings me to my next question about liberty. So I started this podcast because I love writing. I love books. I recently pivoted this show. COVID made me decide to like pursue my passions and to hell with what I think is important, so to speak. I just love talking about books so much. And I particularly love talking about books that feature characters of color. But I recognize that when people come on the show, a lot of the people listening have not read the book. So this is not an opportunity to give spoilers or to discuss the finer points of, you know, plot in the story, but more to talk about the story behind the story, right? Mm -hmm. So I, of course, have read Liberty and found it absolutely wonderful, stunning, and could speak about it for a million years. But for the purpose of the show, I would like to get into, again, kind of the story behind the story and a little bit about your writing process regarding Liberty. But to begin, how do you describe what Liberty is about for the person who has not read it yet? So Liberty is about what the meaning of freedom means, particularly in the context of Black liberation. So As I was writing the book, I was thinking a lot about how in the U.S. our definition of freedom is usually around what someone in power can get away with doing to someone who doesn't have power. And that freedom is usually really entwined in ideas of domination over your wife, over your children, over the land, 
over property values, over another race. That's usually how a lot of people define freedom in the U.S. So Liberty, the character who's the titular character of the novel, she is a dark-skinned Black woman in Reconstruction-era U.S., She is freeborn, so she does have that privilege. But in all other ways, she's literally at the bottom of the social rung for every room she walks into, whether it's with white people, whether it's with black people, whether it's the probably rare occasion that it would be a mixed audience, she's always going to be on the bottom. So what does that look like? What does sort of freedom look like when you are considered to be sort of at the bottom of the social scale? What would you, what could we learn from people in those positions of a more expansive understanding of freedom and a more liberatory understanding of freedom for all of us that would better benefit all of us? You know, a freedom that doesn't necessarily re- rely on violence to maintain order, a freedom that doesn't rely on exclusion or um, hatred to sort of keep flourishing, what would that look like, actually? And those are sort of the questions that animate the novel and that lead Liberty through her life. Can you tell me a little bit about how you stumbled upon this story and how much of it is based on real people? And were you thinking about this idea of freedom and found the real characters? Or was it the other way around that you found the characters and that kind of sparked the idea of thinking about freedom? So I was inspired by the story of Dr. Susan Smith McKinney Stewart, who was the first black female doctor in um, New York State, and her daughter, who ended up marrying the son of the Episcopal Archbishop of Haiti and sort of having a, a failed marriage there. And I really liked that story a lot, and I was sort of drawn to more the story of the daughter and her marriage and that marriage's failure, because I was thinking of it in terms of, you know, So much of popular Black history is around Black people who were exceptional to the mold, like who was the first or who was the the top or who was the first person to usually, and when we say the first, we mean, of course, the first person to break into a white space. And I really wanted to sort of play with that expectation that that's where the story is, where I think the story is really in people who either rejected either wholesale um, consciously or unconsciously sort of those parameters of Black achievement and Black history, and then also what the emotional toll is of being a first, of being someone who breaks a barrier like that, which I think is probably the less explored story of Black achievement, I guess. I don't know if it's, I would call it achievement, but that side of Black history. And so as I started to sort of think about those things, the question of freedom came back. And of course, Reconstruction is such a fascinating era because it's so similar to our own. It mirrors, um, really eerily mirrors so many things that are happening right now. And of course, Reconstruction is is super fascinating because it's a moment of intense freedom for Black people in that, you know, we literally expanded the definition of who was free in this country um, and expanded the idea of what a citizen in this country could be, you know, in an incredibly short period of time, a people who were traumatized by probably one of the most traumatic experiences on earth, you know, U.S. capital slavery, were able to establish their own towns, their own newspapers, their own schools, their own hospitals, just like an incredible outpouring of movement and energy and emotion at the same time that you had this incredible rise of white violence, white backlash and white indifference to it, really, that allowed Jim Crow to rise and flourish. So those contradictions and those tensions around freedom and around the possibilities of freedom were the things that drew me to write about the story. I realized as I started reading the book, I don't remember reading stories that really kind of got us in that place, that really unique time in American history. 
I mean, when you study history, that is this really remarkable time. But oftentimes it's passed over. Like Reconstruction era is often passed over, right? We Mm -hmm. go from Civil War to Jim Crow and you forget that there was a moment, there was this parentheses in our timeline where there was this real sense that there was going to be possibilities for Black people to be free. And then juxtaposed with the idea of freedom in Haiti, which is where you have this other part of the story taking place, this idea that no freedom is in a country that's run by Black people that overthrew the white man. And so these two places where you're, where Black people were thinking about really being free, that again, I thought, wow, what a great place to have a story to talk about what does Black freedom really mean. You said you stumbled upon this story. How does one stumble upon this story? Were you like, what was the circumstances that you found this story in? So I worked for a history museum in Brooklyn called the Weeksville Heritage Center, and it's dedicated to the history of Weeksville, which was a free Black community that was founded in Brooklyn in 1838, 11 years after the end of slavery in New York State. And Dr. Susan Smith McKinney-Stewart, who the Mother in Liberty is based on, she was a daughter of one of the founders of that community. And so I spoke to one of her ancestors, who is the soap opera actress, Ellen Holly. I did an oral history with her because one of my jobs there was to um, do their oral history program. And she told me this really sort of extraordinary story, less about her ancestor. Um, You know, in their family story, they're this Black family who has been able to trace their family history back to the 1790s in New York to um, the first person who was enslaved and brought over here. Also, I should say that their family is light-skinned family and has a number of firsts in their family, like first Black doctor, first theologian at this certain school, all these sorts of things. But within their family, the family history story that I got from Ms. Holly and that she details in her biography is less like we're so proud we were first in these white spaces and more sort of like these are the ways that we contended with the larger U.S. culture, which we always knew was harmful and awful to us. The goal was not assimilation into whiteness. The goal was to make a better life for our families. But we have always understood and known that white supremacy rules this country and us being a first is not going to change that. And it's such a nuanced way. I think that's probably the way that a lot of Black people talk about this stuff to each other, to ourselves and our family. But I don't know that that we talk about it that way in mixed company. And that's definitely not the way that it often gets written about for our younger kids, for our, our students who learn about Black history, what little they learn about Black history in schools. That's such a, a key sort of shift in understanding. You know, one of the things that I found in researching was that this family, the... um the Susan Smith McKinney Stewards and the Hawley family who went to uh, Haiti. The Hawley family actually, right before the Civil War, they decided they had been um, long-term abolitionist activists and they just wholesale decided, you know, the U.S. is never going to give up on white supremacy. We're done. We're done with this country. We're leaving. We're going to go to Haiti and we're going to live there and we're going to live in this all-Black country and we're going to try and make a Black homeland there and hopefully other um, Black Americans will join us. But that also didn't mean that they were, like, done with Black people in America. They were just done with white people. And they, in fact, kept the lines of communication open so much so, you know, that they're intermarrying with each other and going back and forth. And so that like shift in understanding, you know, I think is so important and so key in reading and writing about Black people in the past is that sort of shift in understanding and away from oftentimes the ways that popular Black history gets taught is like, let's focus on the places where Black people interacted with whiteness and less let's talk about what was actually going on within our communities themselves. 
So great. And that's, again, another thing that I enjoyed so much about this because it completely opened my eyes up to this idea. Like, I just never really thought about Black Americans going back and forth to Haiti. I never thought about that time when we were free to move, to make that decision. I'm done. Where else can I go? And I think that that narrative is so I don't want to say it's not lost. It just hasn't been explored very much, particularly in like popular fiction and popular, just like the popular notion of what Black people have done with their own agency. I don't think there's enough narratives about, again, Black people getting up and moving, like voting with their feet. And, you know, today people are talking about, it's a Black sit, you know, we're leaving the country, we're voting with our feet. But we've been doing that. And that's what's so interesting. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious, how much about Haitian culture did you know? Or did you go to Haiti? Like, how much research did you have to do to pull off the part of the story that takes place in Haiti, which is significant? I did a lot of research around, I read a lot of Haitian novels. You know, Haiti has a, such a rich literary history. I just found out the statistic a few weeks ago, which just blows my mind, which is up until the 1980s, after the U.S., Haiti was published the most books in the Western Hemisphere of all the countries in the Western Hemisphere. Wow. You know, and there's not that many people who live there. So it's, it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely fascinating. You know, it has this rich literary history, just the, you know, intense number of authors that luckily... Um, because there's been such an upswing of interest in Haiti in like the last 10 years or so, um, Haitian history, I should say, a lot of them are now getting translated into English, which is really exciting. But so I, I tried to read as much as I could of the literature and as much as I could of the history. I tried to interview who I could of the scholars studying it. What was helpful for me to sort of let go of the spiral of research that you could I could have fallen under was this idea that the novel is through the eyes of liberty and she herself is a newcomer to that country. She doesn't really, you know, she's a, um, she's new to it and she's an outsider. So I tried to sort of think about like, what are the things she would notice as an outsider? And what are the things that perhaps I know that I can't rediscover because I'm reading this in sort of like translated histories in English, you know, a hundred years after the fact, what can I actually sort of find and put in? And the big part I want, I hope people take away is like, there's so much more there and there's so much that history. And I think it's really important for Black Americans in particular to remember how much Haiti influenced our forefathers and foremothers in terms of what they thought was possible in the 19th century and what they looked up to. I think in the last, especially like in the last couple of years, there's been sort of this, as people have gotten really excited about Black American history, which is great, there's been sort of a rewriting of history that somehow Black Americans in the 19th and 20th century never talked to Black people in any, in any other country. And like, um, you know, West Indian immigrants are somehow some new thing that happened in the 70s. Or, you know, talking to African immigrants was like a new thing that we've never had before. And that's just not true. You know, that's true if you're looking at history from what white people thought of us, which is like, you're all the same you can't possibly be talking to each other. But if you're looking at history from our own sources, our own newspapers, our own diaries, our own artists, those connections and those conversations were constantly happening, were so important to the art that people were creating, the political tracks and political theories that people were writing, you know, the history that people were were making. It was always an intercontinental conversation. And you can't really talk about Black American identity without talking about that. And also the idea that talking about that does not take away from Black American identity. That's not saying that the descendants of slaves didn't make something. They did. 
It's just that they, like every other human being on this planet Earth, talk to and were in conversation with other people. And it's actually really fascinating that even in the weight of white supremacy of white people sort of, you know, paternalistically saying we know best, they still knew to reach out to these other Black communities to figure out and to find solace. Along those lines, something that I thought was just really interesting, and because it's something that I personally have been just starting to kind of research for my own personal interest, but even my last podcast episode was about magic and spirituality and witchcraft in the United States and the multicultural history of those uh, spiritual practices. And in Liberty, there is this pull of voodoo, spirituality, maybe hoodoo a little bit, although it's not necessarily named that, that is very much part of the Pan-African experience, but particularly in the United States, the Black American experience. Talk a little bit about that. I think one of the things that I wanted to sort of explore was those practices and, and healing practices, I think, are really fascinating to many of us today for like a variety of reasons. And then when you look at um, sort of like the history of Black American art, you know, people have always been really sort of fascinated with those traditions like Zora Neale Hurston, you know, spent most of her career trying to catalog those things for us. And most of the stuff that we know about, know about that sort of comes from her, not only from her, but from really her saying this is important and rallying other scholars to sort of document that. And so I... I think number one for us as Black people in America, you know, so much of our community and history is distorted when in fact we have the information ourselves already in our communities with the people who we care to or care not to listen to. And so I think stuff around herbalism and voodoo and hoodoo and what's commonly called witchcraft is one of those learning traditions that we've sort of always had and that also since we have come here have been encouraged by larger white society and also within our own communities to periodically denounce or repudiate or say that there's nothing there for us. And I'm interested in those traditions less as sort of like on a mystical level. I'm interested really more in sort of like what's the practical uses of these for a people who, like I said, have gone through one of the biggest traumas in history, the Atlantic slave trade and enslavement in the U.S., you know, what? how did we come up with a way to cope with that and to continue on? And our spirituality is probably like number one, how how, how we did it, um, whether it was, you know, adopting and transforming the possibilities within Christianity, really making Christianity into a liberatory practice and into a practice that said, you know, we truly extend to all peoples and really sort of like push the questions of Christianity of like, who is going to heaven? Who is actually the good guy in this scenario? Like, what is Christ actually mean in a country that's committed to the violence of slavery? You know, our presence and our ancestors forced those questions. And then for our traditional spirituality, we created these systems of healing and understanding that were really more about addressing the incredible traumas that we live through. And that so much of those traditions are about trying to give meaning to those traumas, which, you know, the larger society told us didn't even matter, you know, told us like when your kid gets sold away, you probably don't even care. Um, you know, like when your grandmother dies, you probably don't even have the capacity to mourn. And so much of our spiritual traditions are around reaffirming for ourselves. In fact, these people mattered. In fact, my feelings matter. In fact, I'm trying to figure out a way to deal with and calibrate my feelings. And so 
when I was writing about voodoo, one of the really helpful things to contextualize it was this idea that it is primarily about healing ruptures in a community, that the idea of being in bad health and being out of sorts with your role in the community are one and the same in many Haitian communities, which is such, a, you know, it seems so simple. And yet it's really sort of like a profound understanding of what we mean when we say we're sick or what we mean when we say we're ill or what we mean when we say we're not in good health. And that so much of voodoo is about either maintaining those relations or repairing those relations when there's been a break within them. So fascinating. And I mean, we could have that conversation for even longer. Um, I just think that, like you said, that the one of the ways we survived this experience is through our spirituality. And I think that the American version of that is simply Christianity. And it mm-hmm. seems to be packaged in this like perfect, you know, King James version of our good spirituality as good Christians when it's so much more complex and so much more influenced by our African ancestry and those traditions. So I love how that's pulled through the story through Liberty, but it's more like de facto as opposed to let me give a parenthetical explanation of why we're talking about this or what this means. It's just part of the story, which I love that so much. So the last theme that I wanted to talk about in Liberty, which we've kind of touched on a bit, but it's about motherhood. Like, I think this story is very much a powerful exploration of motherhood. And again, I don't want to get into any spoilers or details, but I'm just curious how I know you are a mother. I'm not sure if you were a mother when you were writing this story. I'm wondering how much your own experience of motherhood influenced how this story was going to be told. Did it affect it, change it, make it, you know, more primary of the storyline? So I always knew it was going to be about motherhood. I wasn't, I hadn't had my daughter when I was writing most of this book. So most of the drafts were done when I wasn't a mother myself. But I knew I wanted to be about motherhood. And one of the things that I wanted to really sort of like question, and hopefully the reader comes away with questioning is, especially when we talk about Black women mothers, you know, there are these tropes. It's either like the worst mother in the world or the superhuman mother who just has no, absolutely no needs of her own and, you know, is up against the global system of racism and, you know, make sure her kids pull through regardless and um, never has an off day or an off footing around navigating all of that. Or the flip side of that is like a terrible mother who's incapable of being nurturing, only cares about herself, is just like having babies all over the place and has no civilizing effect on their children at all. And those two myths around Black motherhood are are really powerful. And especially like the mother is like a magical being who can sort of like do everything for their kid is I think probably the one that a lot of us go back to when we're talking even about our own mothers just personally. And um, I wanted the characters in the book to really push at that cliche and push at that understanding of motherhood. You know, um, the book opens with... Liberty assuming that her mother can perform magic, like assuming that her mother can resurrect the dead. And then the rest of the book is her really figuring out that her mother is just a human being. Her mother's capable of making mistakes. Her mother's capable of making decisions that she disagrees with. And there has to be another way to build a relationship with this other human being besides either revering her for her entire life or deciding that she's the worst parent ever and she can't possibly uh, raise this daughter in any sort of way. And in that way, it's sort of like a very much a coming of age story. But I I also think, though, even in sort of for like adult writers and, and supposedly like adult literary fiction, Black motherhood is often really reduced to one or the other of those things. And it's much harder to find 
depictions that allow for Black women's humanity in motherhood. I that's great. I and I um I felt that the um again kind of how I was saying earlier about the question of can you be a writer and a mother, you know, this idea that women can't have complex lives or you know it's an either or kind of thing. We always want to have that and I think as you were saying that there's this limited version of what the black woman, the black mother particularly how she's portrayed in literature. So you've talked about this book being about freedom. You've talked about the different kind of ideas that you were working on in telling this story. I came away from reading this book feeling that this was a book about female empowerment. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because you mentioned this idea of not only telling the stories of the first and the exceptional, but kind of the regular person who has a regular life, that that story is worth telling as well. And yet there's And it's not just liberty. It's like there's so many women in this story who I feel like triumph, who exemplify freedom. And I just wonder if you haven't said that per se, but I feel like you just wrote the most amazing like female empowerment book ever. (laughs) Um, Was was that intentional or do you feel like you just write awesome female characters and that's just what comes out? I think I just try and write about women and women identify characters and try and think about their lives as they themselves would define and talk about it, you know, outside of how how an outsider would think of it or how someone would try and, you know, script it for them. I think for so many of us, like we are already living sort of really extraordinary lives. Like if you you know, if first of all, if you talk to any Black woman over the age of like 55, they've already lived probably a really extraordinary life. You may not agree with all their choices. You may think that some of the things they did were terrible or good or whatever, but I can guarantee you that they've probably lived a really wild life when like you got down to the nuts and bolts of it. And so I think that part of it, like what, do, what how would we tell our stories for ourselves when we're just talking to another woman in the room when we don't have to feel like we have to prove ourselves to other people and we don't have to feel like we have to have our stories stand in for everyone else. What would that story look like is the thing that I always sort of think about when I'm writing. Well, again, I've I've already like decided. I see that Roxane Gay, Wellward Black Girl, they've already chosen Liberty as their May book picks. I think I'm going to join like every book club because I want to just keep talking about this book because there's so many, there's so many wonderful things to talk about. Colorism, female empowerment, Black spirituality. I mean, there's so many threads to pull through. And again, I feel like this is one of these really wonderful books that explore Black American history and you don't feel like you need to stab yourself because it's so depressing and like there's no sense of any sort of liberation, like true liberation for the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just so refreshing. So I'm, I love that about this story. Like I finished the book and I had a smile on my face, you know, oh, like a wonderful. contentment. Um, <laughs> and I know, hope- Alice Walker said the most radical thing you can give Black female characters is a happy ending or like an ending that's full of hope. And so I thought about that a lot when I was trying to figure out what the ending of the book should be. So that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. Well, I I love it so much. So I have two writer questions for you to wrap up here. So some of the praise that was given to this book, people used words like Pure Brilliance, a novel of epic power and endless grace, one of the most melodious books I've read in decades, a masterfully crafted story. I'm wondering, as a writer, what kind of pressure does that put on you for the next time you put pen to paper, if at all? 
that itself doesn't put that much pressure on me because I get bored really easily. So I don't think I try and repeat myself that much. You know, like if if I'm working on something that feels too much like something else, I try and figure out how to not make it feel like the thing that I've done before. And that stuff is really great to hear. But in my mind, I sort of think like the books come in the voice that they come in, you know, like the books are written in the prose that makes sense for the project. And another book may come in a different, completely different voice or require like a completely different register of of writing to get the story out. Okay. Well, this may not be the question that you want to hear, but is there something in the works already next or are you not even there yet? No, I'm just, you know, going through life and figuring something out. So nothing next. (laughs) Okay. So my last question, this is super important, okay? Which cover do you like better? Liberty America, the U.S. version, or Liberty, the U.K. version? And I want to just, this is a podcast, so nobody can see what I'm talking about. So you can pause and go look them up. But the U.S. cover art for Liberty is, I think, is just gorgeous. It's like a silhouette of a Black woman, theoretically Liberty. And there's lots of lush vegetation that, for me, reminds me of what Haitian tropical, like lots of bright color. And the U.K. version is like a Black and white photograph of a real person who you could also assume is Liberty. Which cover do you prefer if you prefer or do you like them both? Tell me what you think. Oh, I like them both. I think that they both capture different parts of the novel. So I like the Algonquin one because it's so lush and it's really imaginative and it feels really sort of like magical and hopeful. And I like the UK one because it's a little bit feels a little bit more straightforward. And I think invites people to think of this as like a in conversation with a bunch of different historical documents. So I like both of them for different reasons. And I, I'm just really happy, you know, who gets to have two covers that they really like at once. So that's really great. Yeah, that's I feel like more often than not, writers say like, oh, my God, I hated my cover. Like, I didn't get to say anything. So it's great that you love both covers. But it is really interesting that they're so different, right? That they have a different feeling about the book. And yet, like you said, I think they both speak to what liberty really is, right? There's this hopefulness, and yet there's this very real historical, like, moment that we're going through in this book as well. So I think whatever cover people like, they should just definitely read the book. Um, (laughs) Caitlin, thank you so much for being here on Melting Pot Stories. And where do you like to hang out on the interwebs for people to follow you, learn more about what you're working on? I am on Twitter and Instagram. You can just search for my name on either one of those things and it should come up. And um, yeah, that's usually both those things. Excellent. So I'll put links to those in the show notes so people can find you. Thank you again so much for being here and good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I feel like I just got an entire lesson on how to live in the world as a writer. I also have a few new subjects that I want to learn more about, like this idea of Black Americans exiting the U.S. for a better life immediately after the Civil War. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, I promise you, you will enjoy it even more after you read Liberty. So go read the book and then listen to this conversation again. The book is truly a satisfying read about the Black experience that, like I said in the conversation, left me feeling hopeful instead of traumatized. It's really, really good. 
So be sure to check out the show notes for this episode because in addition to the regular literary links that I usually leave, I'll also include links to the book clubs that are discussing Liberty in May in case you just want to join in those conversations. You'll definitely see me there because I keep wanting to talk about this book. If you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you did, and you want to support the podcast, here are a few easy ways you can do that. One, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review the show. This takes just a few minutes, if not just a few seconds, but it can have an oversized impact in helping other people find the show. And speaking of helping other people find the show, please just tell folks about it. If you have book-loving friends who really enjoyed talking about multicultural books, just share. Or you can share on social media, wherever you like to hang out, whether it's Facebook or Instagram. Just tell people that you enjoy listening to the My American Melting Pot podcast. And three, if you want to support the podcast financially and get something for yourself, please consider shopping at the My American Melting Pot online bookstore. Or you can just leave me a tip via PayPal. Remember that this show is not free to make. It's not even low budget. And any donation that you give helps defray the cost of bringing the melting pot to life. I've made it super easy. You can just hit that bright yellow button on the My American Melting Pot website at myamericanmeltingpot.com and donate whatever you think is best. Thank you. Melting Pot Stories is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor and technical director is Brad Linder. Our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you as always for listening. And until next week, keep reading multicultural books. Multicultural books.